Today, let's end up where we've never been before, but exactly where we began. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Today is a scripture show, that's how we refer to them as we're doing these episodes, uh, that are just uh, an exposition of a passage, and today is Psalm 38. Uh, I've been working through the book of Psalms, Uh, this is the one that I've arrived at right now, and the superscript to this psalm, pretty basic, a psalm of David, another psalm of David, so there are messianic elements in it and all of that that we always talk about with the psalms of David, but then the, the second part of the superscript is to bring to remembrance, or uh, as an offering of remembrance, some will say, or something like that. Uh, and when I say some, I mean some translations suggest that it's an offering of, or a memorial offering or something like that. But I think the gist of it, and this makes sense in light of how this psalm is written, I think the gist of it is the idea that we are approaching God with this song And these are congregational songs. They are the means of worshiping together as a people for Israel under David and now for the church. And, uh, you know, to call it, to bring to remembrance or an offering of remembrance or memorial offering or something like that, I think is intended to say to us, uh, this is our opportunity to say to God, hey, remember us. Uh, we have a need. Would you please pay attention to our need? And they say things like this directly, the Psalms do. They say things like this directly pretty regularly. Uh, Don't forget us. Wake up. How long will you wait? Things like that. And so uh, I think a lot of these Psalms and a lot of the Psalms in the 30s have been like this, by the way. I was telling uh, the congregation where I've been preaching lately how sorry I felt for them when I saw the Psalms that were coming up and knew that I was going to be in their church for a few Sundays in a row. And I've had a really good time out there. By the way, it's First Baptist Church in Liberty City, Texas. Uh, if any of y'all are listening uh, now, I appreciate it very much. And I love your, love your congregation. I've had a great time out there. And Paul Michael Vaca made it possible for me to go out there uh, while he's on sabbatical, which the congregation made available to him. It's been a great time. So anyway, <laughs> I've been preaching these Psalms, and they're so... There just so many of them are, you know, not not directly just lamentations because they're always asking for the help and so on, but they are statements of misery and suffering, and it's like, how long can a congregation take this? And then you think the same thing about Israel as a whole, and even a lot of believers as a whole. And it's it's not just how long can you read Psalms that have this weight to them, this gravity to them. But how long have people lived with that gravity and with the need to utter those prayers, those grievances before God? Uh, and, and in fact, it sort of came to light in that congregation that I was mentioning a moment ago when uh, one of the congregants came to the front uh, before the service began and uh, shared with me how much the Psalms that I had been covering 
had meant to them and then shared, and I, I won't say what it was because I didn't ask permission to share their private story, but uh, shared how many weighty, and I mean really weighty things, had come into their life over the last few months and how meaningful it was for them that we were reading psalms that really did reflect what was in their heart. And then you then you realize how important it is for people to get over this sort of hunky-dory way of reading Scripture and even the Psalms. Well, let's go to the Psalms and read the really nice things that it says there. Oh, God is so nice, and the sky is so blue, and the flowers are so pretty, and that's all the Psalms are to a lot of people. And that's not at all what the Psalms are. There, there are obviously, there are moments of majestic beauty and glory and happiness and joy and exaltation. There's plenty of praise and worship in there, but there is a lot of a lot of angst and worry and concern and sorrow and misery and and you know again I'm not trying to say we want that I'm trying to say our lives already have that and if we're honest about who we are before God then we carry a lot of these burdens and the idea that we would pretend they're not there as if God doesn't want to hear them uh, would miss the point of a lot of the psalms and in, in and in this case and in psalms like this they remind us of that by saying, I'm giving you the tools. The messianic figure of the Old Testament, David, is giving us these tools. The Holy Spirit is giving us these tools. God in his word is giving us these tools so that we will come to him and say, do you see what I'm going through? Would you pay attention to the misery, to the pain that I'm facing right now? He's the one who gives us the tools to be honest with him about the sorrows that we face in this world. And so that's how we approach a lot of these psalms. So uh, Psalm 38 takes this, I think, in a, in, in a, in a fairly straightforward way in three, three parts to the psalm, each of which has sort of a central verse that goes with it, one that's elongated in terms of the, the length of the line itself in the middle of the poem, and so it sort of cries out for attention and says that's what that's what was at the core of this part of the psalm. And those core elements are in the third verse, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. And then in the in the 12th verse, it says, this, this is again Psalm 38, those also who seek my life lay snares for it. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. That's the 12th verse. And then in the last two verses, which I think are, are intended to be taken together, it says, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. They're all distinctive for their own reasons, uh, in the middle of the the rest of the verses that surround them, and so they sort of make up three distinct parts of the psalm. So we'll take verses 1 through 8 together, and then 9 through 14, and then the rest of the psalm uh, after that. So I'll just read to you the first eight verses and a few comments uh, in order to understand what's going on here. So he says in verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. I'm reading to you today from the New King James Version. For your arrows pierce me deeply. Your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. 
My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. So there are really three different little parts to this piece of the psalm, to the first eight verses. And what, they, what they're going to come down to is that the end of that phrase that I said is at the center of it, which says, because of my sin. And in the, in the next verse also, for my iniquities, that there is something we face, there is some wrath of God, there is some displeasure uh, that we experience because of our own unfaithfulness. So in this context, the idea is that when I'm unfaithful, these are the things that I face and that I want to draw to your attention, God, not because I'm worthy of drawing your attention to it. I'm not right. Uh, I am without right because I've sinned. I am in iniquity. And yet I know God is right for punishing me. And, and yet I want him to notice that I've, I've been crushed. I am burdened under the weight of my sin, of my failure. And so in saying all of that, he does it sort of in three little parts. In, in the first couple of verses, it's viewing God as the one who is his opponent. So he is a judge. If I were in court, he's the person who's judging me against me. And then a warrior, one who's chasing me with arrows, right? So don't rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Your arrows pierce me deeply. Your hand presses me down. Uh, everything about it acknowledges that God is the one who's bringing this punishment on my life. The second part of it is along the lines of personal confession. So he's, so he's not taking the first two verses and then turning them and saying, and this is unfair. I shouldn't have to face this. Instead, he's saying, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. But the, but it, and then his restatement of that is to say, nor is there any health in my bones, but it's now not because of his anger, but because of my sin. So his anger makes sense. <laughs> I sinned. It's not a surprise that this is happening. And this is the point that when I'm unfaithful, I don't have any right to complain. I just have misery, and so I want to complain. I want to tell God what's going on, even though I know he's right and I'm wrong, and I'm not making a, an appeal with it where I say, I deserve help, so you have to help me. It is an appeal from utter despair, so I am unfaithful, and so I'm not right, and God is right, and God's rightness is even apparent in verse 4, by the way, the second part of this second section in the first part. <laughs> anyway, in verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. So I'm paying the price of the inequity that's on me because of my sin. All of that's my own responsibility. But in verses 5 through 8, all of that tone changes simply to say why he would turn to God, knowing he doesn't deserve to. He has no right to make this complaint. But his suffering is so great that he needs to be transparent with God about it. And so he is. Uh, some people will take these verses, and I've, I've just heard this a few times in the pulpit, and I don't think it's misguided. I, I just, I'm not sure it heads the right direction, though. So I guess that's the meaning of misguided. But anyway, the point is, I don't think it's poorly motivated. But I, I, do, I do think it underestimates the significance of the metaphor that's actually being used. Let me explain what I mean. 
So in verse 5 of, of Psalm 38, he says, my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. And people immediately start saying, oh, so David's describing a physical illness that he has, which is possible. I mean, it's certainly possible. He's certainly describing something in terms of a physical illness, whether he has it at that moment or not, regardless. But then he says, I am troubled, I'm bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. Well, we're used to language like that, the hands that hang down, the knees that are bent, you know, in the book of Hebrews, for instance. And so it's, it does seem more generic about suffering. And then he goes on to say, for my loins are full of inflammation, and uh, people will ascribe that to a certain disease, you know, and say, well, this is David suffering the consequences of whatever. But this is an expression, an idiom that would be used in the same way that we talk about the bowels being moved with compassion, to use the King James language about it. You know, it's your, your, your guts are stirred. Your innermost being is in turmoil. And the use of this metaphor, the loins as a description of that, is the same thing. Uh, and it's used across cultures as well. For my loins are full of inflammation is a way of saying my most inner being is in tumult because of what I'm going through right now. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and broken severely, and I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. And that last, those last expressions make it clear that it's not about the physical infirmity, even if he has those particular physical infirmities, which I doubt. I think his, his use of the language is it's just to say, my heart is broken, my soul is destroyed, and it's as if you've broken every bone in my body. You know, this is what he's communicating. Okay. What I, but the reason I bring that up is because he's completely transparent in his suffering. And I've said this recently, and it's in these Psalms so repeatedly uh, that it's hard not to repeat it, but I will say it again here. It, it makes no sense for us to play the role of Pollyanna when we approach God. Uh, it's not as if he's not aware of what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. And I know how bad it is to be bitter. I know uh, how revelatory that is of the problem in our own soul when we're bitter. Circumstances don't make us bitter. They reveal a bitterness that's already inside of us. I get all of that. I understand all of it. If, if, we, if we take that attitude, though, and then we go to prayer and we say, well, I, I don't want to say to God, I'm bitter about this or I'm angry about this because I know how unrighteous it is to be bitter or angry, and then we say to God, look, I understand, Lord. I, I know that this is, this is okay. What, what, do you think God doesn't know what's going on inside your heart? You, you think he says, oh, good. They feel better about it now. I, I get that. That's all okay. He knows exactly what's going on inside of us, and the nature of our prayer should be to express that with complete honesty and transparency before God. You're having a conversation with the one being in the universe who knows your soul better than you do. It is the perfect opportunity to express the depths of your soul. And I'm saying all of that in completely personal terms because that's where we live, inside of our own psyches. But for Israel and people who live in a community and for every church, we should recognize this and learn this. For Israel, they sang these songs together, congregationally, back to God, rehearsing them. We know this. They, they practiced it all of the time. We even see it in the New Testament with them singing these psalms together. And so for, for them to be taking these words and saying them to God together, 
is for them as a congregation to be saying, look, we have a God who is willing to hear us when we call out to him, who's willing to understand what we've been through. You know, I've, and this is, there, there are a, a lot of, a lot of different reasons things happen to us. I get that. But the opening to this psalm, it's, it's so important that built into the opening of this psalm is not, look at all of these unjust things that are happening to us. I know you'll hear us this time because we didn't deserve this, so surely God will respond. This is not that. This is them deserving it and praying it to God who has brought the judgment on them. So I've mentioned to you many times, and this is the role that I play. I'm the president at Criswell College. I love being at this college. I love our facilities. I love what God has provided for us in Old East Dallas. We get to be in an environment where we can put our students in a setting where they learn ministry in the context of an old urban city. Uh, I Well, that's kind of redundant, I know. But the point is, it's a fantastic place to learn about ministry and the opportunity. So for students, and we only try to draw a certain kind of student, students who want to give away their whole lives and careers to God and the people he told us to serve. They want to do that. And so being here gives them an opportunity to sort of sense what that's like, how to connect with community and so on. And we're we're having a great time doing it. So I love our facilities, but we work primarily, we have a brand new dorm and the students love that. And we have a a building that's slightly older that I do this uh, podcast in, uh, our library building. But the building that we do most of our work out of is 70 years old. It was built in 1950 or 51, something like that. And and, and, the, and our boiler is older. It was used when we put it in. So our HVAC plant is ancient. And so we had a, we had a fire the other day, not a, not a big fire, in the basement, and it burned up one of our, uh, our panels, our electrical panels. And it was, you know, it was, it was under control right away. The fire department responded promptly. They're, they're, they're fantastic. You know, they did a great job. And uh, we're grateful for all of that. But the smoke damage was enough to get us out of the building for a while as we mitigate, you know, the fumes and, the, and stuff like that. No real smoke damage in, in the bad sense. But anyway, we're following up on it. So we're thinking, oh, well, you know, thank heavens we, you know, we have insurance and so on like that. Well, the other thing that happened was not too long ago in this 70-year-old building, we had 10 inches of rain in an hour. And that's, and I, I know the 10 inches didn't come inside the building, but it sort of did. Uh, because it flowed off the side of the other building that we have, and ran, well, it's this this seventy year old building, and ran down into the basement because our drains are designed probably for nine inch rains in an hour, but not ten inch rains in an hour, and so we flooded out the basement where we have chapel services and all kinds of special events, and we so we we just had to gut that part of the building and. And of course, you know, it's flood damage. So insurance is like, <laughs> no, thank you for the check, but no. Uh-uh. And so we get nothing. So what, you know, what am I going to say? Am I going to say, oh, man, I can't believe this insurance company. Why aren't they helping us out? Or how could, how on earth could we have a flood and a fire within two months of each other? And I can say all of that. Or I can just acknowledge that if I'm going to live in a 70-year-old building, sometimes things are going to go wrong. It's part of living in a 70-year-old building. I can blame everybody else, but hey, this is our building. It's 70 years old. This is what we have. And, and we love having it because it's so magnificent in some ways, not the fire way, not the flood way, but in a lot of the other ways, it's just magnificent. I can blame everybody else, but this is what's going on here. I can say, why do I suffer? Why am I in pain? Why am I grieving? 
But David starts by saying, I know it's because of my sin. I know it's because of my iniquity. This is so far from where we live. Uh, If you'll give me just another minute to illustrate it with a corny joke, uh, I'll illustrate it one more way to make the point, because it's so, again, so far from our psyche. It's hard for us to recognize that, that we should be here. So I t- I've told this joke before in a lot of places. So if you've ever heard me before, you can discount. Well, the joke's even going to be worse. But, it, but it's simple. I'll, I'll tell it really quickly. Guy's walking down the street, runs into an old friend. The guy's just bawling his eyes out. And the old friend says to him, whoa, why, why are you crying? And he says, oh, it's my uncle died. A couple of weeks ago, my uncle died. And he says, oh, I understand. You must have been really close to him. He says, no, I didn't even know him. But, but he left me $100,000. And he goes, oh left you $100,000, and you didn't even know him. But, I mean, that doesn't seem like bad news. Oh, you just don't understand. Well, tell me tell me what's up then. He's, oh, well, you know, last week I found a lottery ticket on the ground because he's a Baptist, and he wouldn't buy a lottery ticket, of course, but he found one. And it won, and I won a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000. And the guy says, well, that, 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 doesn't seem like, that doesn't seem like bad news. Why are you crying? And and he says, oh, you don't understand. Two weeks ago, $100,000. Last week, $250,000. This week, nothing. That's, the, that's, that's where we live. We live where we know everything that's come to us, we may not have deserved it. We, we may not have, but we're so used to it, and we're so blessed, and we have so much, that if we don't constantly receive, we expect more, and even when we do receive, we expect more than that. If you, I couldn't even begin to communicate the number of layers that we live in above what everyone in the history of the world before us has ever had, and yet we expect more. <laughs> it's just where we live. And yet where God wants us to be is in a place where if something bad happens to us, think of how many steps there are between where we live knowing that all we have is so abundant and yet we want more, and what I'm about to say, because where God wants us to live is in a place where even when terrible things are happening to us, our first response, not our only response, but our first response is to say, I actually deserve worse than that because I know myself and I know I deserve worse than I'm facing right now. That this, the, this is what the opening part of this psalm compels us to recognize, that when David is faced with misery or suffering of any kind that's destroying his inner being, as he describes it at the end of that section, his first reaction is not to say, God, this is unfair, stop. God, give me good things instead. His first reaction is to say, Lord, do give me relief, but I know I deserve it. I know I deserve what you've given me. I know I deserve this pain, but I'm crushed and I need help. So when I'm unfaithful, I recognize that I have no rights, that I, that, that I did what I did was wrong, and that God is right in doing it. That's where I start. That's where the psalm begins. And as a congregation, that's where they would gather first. They would say, we know, Lord, that you are right, and we've been wrong, but we need help. <laughs> okay, secondly then. The second part of the psalm, verses 9 through 14. This goes from being unfaithful, you know, in my sin, in my iniquity, to instead of focus on all the things that I lack. So I'm without hope in this case. 
either from myself or from anyone else. And in fact, I've got people who are opposing me in the process where I would look for help. It's sort of like Job with his friends. So Lord, all this starts in verse nine, Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone out from me. That's why I said this is without hope. The light of your eyes, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have hope. I have, you know, an aspiration light in my eyes. Nope, the light has gone out from my eyes. Verse 11, my love, and not just me. I'm weak. I have no strength. My strength fails. That's all true. But also my loved ones and my friends. So we're going to take a step at a time and just show that there's no one to help. Not me, not my friends, and certainly not my enemies. So my heart pants, my strength fails. Verse 11, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. My relatives stand far off. Verse 12, what about my enemies? Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, still going back to the weakness that I have, like a deaf man, do not hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Thus, I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. And in this case, it would be as if he's standing again before that judge, but he can't hear the accusations and he certainly can't give a response. I have nothing to say. This is a person who is completely without help. He is weak. He has no hope whatsoever. That's the description that's being given. No strength, no one else to help. The enemies are making it worse. I have nowhere to turn. This is what I was talking about a moment ago. You know, have a flood in the bottom of the building. You go to insurance. Hey, help us out. Uh, well, probably not going to help you out. No hope whatsoever. Nowhere to turn. That's what he's describing here. And the thing about this description is that it's actually setting us up for the place we need to be, where we realize that we are faithless and that we're hopeless. That is, we don't have faith. We're without faithfulness, which is the same word in Hebrew and Greek. And, in, and then the, in the second case, that we're also without hope. We have nowhere to turn. In the New Testament, this shows up in a different way. And, and it's, but, it's, but it's a way, I think, that's relevant for bridging to the end of this psalm and for us understanding where it goes. And I'm just going to take the illustration of Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians. It's the passage, you know, in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about his thorn in the flesh. As David has been talking about being pierced by God's arrows, Saul, Paul, talks about uh, this thorn that God has put in his flesh and that he won't relieve from, from him. So he says in verse, this is in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 12, verse 7, and, and the reason it comes to Paul is a reason that doesn't come up in the psalm. So we, we don't know this from the psalm. But I will give it the New Testament context that we're given all the time as believers, which is there is a fault in Paul. You say, well, th- there's nothing wrong with Paul that brings about this thorn in the flesh. No, there is. Because when Paul receives the revelation, remember the statement he gives is, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Well, the exalted above measure isn't going to happen because everybody else just puts him on their shoulders and walks around with him, and and he in his humility just acknowledges that they're walking around with him. That's not the problem. Him being exalted above measure means him being proud. 
So to keep me from being proud, you gave me this thorn in the flesh. God had a reason for it to begin with. Regardless of how you think of that, even if you leave that out of it, just without that context at all, it still comes down to the fact that Paul is facing this misery, whatever it is, a physical infirmity, some kind of a spiritual difficulty or challenge or some sin that weighs him down, like in Hebrews 12, or you know whatever people think it might be. And I know the speculations people give about it, they're all speculations, it's fine. I think some of those are pretty good guesses. But he says, you gave me you know, lest I should be exalted, uh, you know, above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, the opponent, the adversary, the enemy, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, he does what David does. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Lord, take your hand off of me. Lord, stop shooting these arrows at me. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, no. (laughs) You know the answer. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in, we hate this concept. We accept it. We quote it. You know, we, we mention it. We hate the concept. My strength is made perfect in, and he's not just using this ontologically. Your weakness, my strength is made perfect in weakness, means my strength is made perfect when you are in weakness and therefore dependent on me. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, I'll rest in that. Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, my failures, my weaknesses, my hopelessness. I will rather boast in my infirmities so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And what we carry with us, and I say this all of the time, I have to say it to myself all of the time because it's so difficult not to want to live in this space. We have to say to ourselves, it's not God's desire that we become independently strong. He's not a parent trying to put us out on our own so that we don't need him anymore. That's, that extends the analogy beyond the intent of the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Everything we receive comes from him. Even when we are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is the manifestation of God's presence in us. Of course, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, equal with God and triune, you know, it's all that. I get, I get the doctrine, but this is the point. Jesus says it that way. I and my Father will come and dwell in him. We will send the Spirit to him. The, the Father's presence in us, the Son's presence in us is played out as the Holy Spirit produces his fruit in us. That's all his strength. Our need is to depend on him, and this is what he wants to generate in us, an awareness of how dependent we are on God. And so what we come to in the last part of the psalm is this really beautiful turn where we were without faith, without faithfulness, but it's also without faith. We're in sin and iniquity. And so we're faithless at the beginning of the psalm. We're hopeless in the middle of the psalm. So where do we find faith and hope? (laughs) This is the whole point. So that's when I, when I have no faith, then I put faith in God and his faithfulness, his faith. 
when I lack hope, then I put hope in God, and he gives me real hope. So I put faith and hope in a deliverer, a savior. That's how I'm strong when I'm weak. I'm strong not because I developed the ability to overcome all of my sins. I'm strong because I have faith. I'm strong not because I figured out the source of all the suffering in my life and know the resolution to it, but because I have hope. The whole strength of a believer is in faith and hope. And so in verse 15, he says it this way, and this just goes through verse 22, for in you, O Lord, I hope you will hear O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, the enemies, because this is part of the suffering that we face. When people who are are clearly doing what's wrong are winning, they're winning. They win over us, they win over everything else. And it's like, well, why is that happening? And so David says it. I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they stand on my neck and exalt themselves against me, for I am ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies, they're vigorous. They're strong. They have power. Those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. He's rehearsing the image that we receive from above. Not only do I, I know, I know I deserve what I've received, but I confess it. Not, and, and then when I face all of these others who are opposed to me, where do I find hope? And so he goes on. So he says in verse 19, my enemies are vigorous. They are strong. Those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they're my adversaries because now I'm in this position where I'm following the good. I'm following you. I'm following after the Lord. I'm following after faith and hope. And so he says in verses 21 and 2, so do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. And then the last verse and the last word that is the point to arrive at that I said would take us right back to where we were at the beginning. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation, my deliverer, my salvation. I'm coming back to God. I'll come back to that comment in just a moment. So let me put this in the context of one other New Testament passage that I've talked about before quite a bit, and, and you, you, if you've listened to a lot of the other things that I've done, you may have heard this. So I'm, I'll be brief on this, but it's this beautiful passage about the unjust judge and the widow who has to come and ask for help. And I've mentioned, and I'll say it at the beginning so that you'll recognize it as we're reading through it again, I've mentioned it is a particular type of logical argument, an argument from analogy where one thing is greater than the other, an a fortiori argument, in which case we say, oh, well, even if this judge is willing to help, of course God is going to help. Uh, because God is greater than the judge. So a fortiori, you know, because God is greater, we can certainly count on him helping. So he makes the argument this way. So here's, here's how it comes out. He, he, makes this par- he gives this parable to them for this purpose. This is the beginning of Luke 18. So that men would pray and not give up on their praying. That's what this psalm invites. This psalm says, oh, okay, you're suffering and you deserve it. And you've lost not only your own faith, but also your hope. Then here's a psalm for you pray this to God and don't quit praying it. Why not quit? So he goes on to say, Well, let me tell you a story. This is what a parable is. So Jesus says, Well, let me tell you a story. And it's a believable story. 
right? We can make sense of the story. So there's a judge in a city. He's not a judge who's good or righteous or cares about people or God or anybody else. He's an unjust judge. He doesn't fear God or man. And in the same city, there's a widow who needs help. She's a widow. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have income. She doesn't have hope, right? She's without any other help. And yet she's been cheated in some way. Somebody has taken her inheritance or taken her husband's farm or whatever it is. So the widow comes to the judge and says, get justice for me from my adversary. Somebody has been opposing her. This is the prayer of the psalm that we're praying. Lord, my adversaries are against me, and I cannot defend myself. They are praying exactly like this widow. And so she goes to the unjust judge and says, avenge me of my adversary. And he won't do it. He doesn't do it. She keeps coming back to him, as you'll see in just a moment. She keeps coming back to him because he refuses to help. Now, he's unjust. He doesn't care about her or anybody else. So it's not a surprise that he doesn't want to help her. But after a while, he said within himself, even though I don't fear God or care about people, this widow is troubling me so much, I'll avenge her. Lest by her coming back again and again and again, she just wears me out. This is what the just, unjust judge says. That's not God. Do not take from this parable that if you bother God long enough, he'll give in and do what you want regardless of his own will. That's just absurd. That's not at all what this parable is about. How do I know that? Because Jesus tells us what the parable is about in the next verses. So Jesus said, now listen to what you're supposed to learn from this parable. Hear what the unjust judge said. Will not God... So God is way better than an unjust judge. So, of course, God is going to do better than the unjust judge. So Jesus says, well, shall not God avenge not a strange widow who's pestering him, but his own elect who cry out day and night to him, even if he waits a long time to do it, though he bears long with them? And then in verse 8, Jesus confirms it by saying, oh, I guarantee you, He will avenge them speedily. He knows what's happening, and he cares, and he will respond. That's not the end of what Jesus says, though, because what he's doing in that parable, and I won't go back and teach the whole thing. We did it when we were in the the book of Luke on the radio instead of the podcast. But, uh, But in the whole context, this is a part of Jesus answering the question, oh, is God now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, is he going to end the suffering that's in the world? Is he finally going to make things right and take over the world? And in answer to that question, Jesus is saying, I know you've been waiting a long time, but I promise you God has been listening, and he knows. And just like an unjust judge would finally do the right thing in the end just because somebody asked over and over and over again, our God is not unjust, and you're not a strange widow. You're his chosen people. I guarantee you he's listening, and he is going to make things right. After he says all of that, then he says, but that's not the problem. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man does come, when he does make everything right in the world, the question is, is he going to find anyone who still has faith in him? Will he really find faith on the earth? And so, you know, this is the answer in the psalm. The psalm is saying, yeah, it's true that you've suffered. It's true that you deserve the suffering. It's true that you're hopeless, but it's also true that I have hope for the hopeless. 
And it's also true that I am faithful to those who have failed me but can now put their faith in me as their Messiah, as their deliverer. So, you know, the answer to, to the question, like if, if we're asking this at the beginning of the psalm, how am I supposed to live in this weakness and this helplessness that surrounds my life? The answer is with faith. This is the whole point. And so, uh, you know, for instance, uh, with that fire that I was talking about happened in our building, we ended up being jammed into a, a library. So we have moved the classroom spaces over to our library and Students have been meeting there, and the faculty have to come in and work there, and some of the staff have to come in and do work there. And, you know, the, the, the first couple of days that I came in to do get some of my work done at a desk sitting here at this desk, which is where I record these episodes, uh, when I, which is in, the, in, in our library, when I came in to do it, I thought I'd run into staff, and I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry you're having to work in this really awkward position. You know, come over to the library instead of your own office, blah, blah, blah. Every single response from a staff, from a faculty, from a student, Every single response was, well, actually, it's really been kind of fun. It's, it's been nice having this sense of community and being around everybody else and so on like that. It was remarkable what happened, which is a reminder. And I'm not saying that God gave us a fire so that we'd cram into a library and reestablish a sense of stronger community or something like that. But I'm okay with that, being a part of what's going on with the fire. But I am saying to us, fires that are burning in our lives, things that seem to be destroying us constantly, are the very things God uses to drive us towards something, not just to get us back to what we were before, we were already that, but to make us something different, something better, where we could look up and say, oh, you were delivering me from where I was. You were making things different from what they were. This is the point that if you read the last two verses of the psalm, do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, do not be far away. Make haste to come and help me, O Lord, my salvation. He's pleading for God to be closer. How did the psalm open in the first two verses? Lord, please stop. Back away. Take your wrath away. Don't chasten me anymore. Your arrows are piercing me. Your hand is pressing down on me. Your presence is crushing me. He goes from acknowledging that God's presence is crushing him to begging for God's presence to be with him. Because this, and this is the whole point today, that when we realize God is never absent, things don't happen without his knowledge. Even when we're suffering, even when we're miserable, God is present. I'm not saying he's doing what we want. I'm not saying how that relates to his sovereignty and our will and suffering and evil in the world. I'm not resolving any of that today. I'm working with this psalm And this psalm is telling us that if we'll realize that God isn't absent when we're suffering, he's not absent when we're miserable. I'm not saying he feels present, but he is present. Then when we finally do turn to faith, we can realize we're really just returning to the God who's been in the same place all along waiting for us to find our faith and hope in Him. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.